You're listening to Sprogcast, a podcast for people interested in pregnancy, birth, infant feeding and early parenting. Sprogcast is presented by Mark Harris and Karen Hall and sponsored by Pinter and Martin. All right. Uh, welcome to episode 50 of Sprogcast, hosted by me, Mark Harris. And me, Karen Hall. In today's show, we're chatting about interesting things in the news, uh, which you might already have seen on the Facebook page. Uh, and to return to a topic that came up a couple of episodes ago, uh, we have a very interesting interview with Gina Rippon, the author of The Gendered Brain. More about that in a minute. We are delighted to be sponsored by Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth, parenting, psychology, nutrition, yoga and some fiction at pinterandmartin.com. We also now collect sponsorship at patreon.com slash sprogcast, where you can sign up for badges, t-shirts and other exciting rewards. You can support the show from as little as one US dollar per month, though if you can stretch to two dollars, we'll send you a badge. This month I've sent a badge to Laura Weatherall, who I think I randomly met on a train the other day. Hi, Laura. Um, and we've had a donation from Sarang Thacker, but no address to send a badge to. So do get in touch if you would like one. And I believe there is a new T-shirt wearer out there, the delightful Hannah Henley. Have you sent her a T-shirt yet, Mark? Oh, God, I'm so embarrassed. Have you got two to do now? I have. And uh, I, I, I tell <laughs> you what, this is my commitment. We're, we're recording today on the 20th of May and it, it will go out today. I, I do apologise to both people concerned. I have no excuse apart from being tardy. There, you have a personal apology, which is even better than a T-shirt. Yeah, I'm very sorry. I will get it done today. I do apologise. So we're going to be at the Northern Ireland Positive Birth Conference on the 27th of September. So tickets, I think, are currently available. Um, it seems to be being um, created and managed brilliantly by um, Michelle. Michelle Bradley. Oh, thank you. The, the author of Pangs. <laughs> yes, you're one of your authors. Yeah, awesome. Book's doing very well indeed, yeah. Brilliant. And she's very efficient at organising these kind of things. I mean, the first one last year I was at, I think there's over 250 people at it. That's really impressive for a first one as well. Oh, fantastic. And um, well organised, well put together and a good spread of speakers. What, what are you doing there anyway? I am hosting a panel um, between two speakers on um, continuity of carer. All right. What are you doing? Me, I'm I'm speaking about transforming birthing culture. I think. Fabulous. I think we'll see. You think? It'll well, just be, is it going to be spontaneous? No. Well, they never <laughs> are. They they never are truly spontaneous because a lot of thinking, reading, and thought, and life um, goes on. Um, often I'll plan something and then I'll get uh, a feeling of insight while I'm doing it, so something else will come out. But uh, no, I love Belfast. You know, I'm there again next month teaching the three-step rewind. So it's a lovely place to be. Karen, how are you, mate? I'm all right. Seem to be slightly between major goings on at the moment, which is nice. Uh, anything, anything come up for you recently in your work that, you know, you found challenging or uh, it's been a bit different? Are you trying to obliquely ask me what's going on at NCT? Yeah, go, well, go on. What's going on at NCT then? Well, things that have happened have been messages going out on social media by NCT that don't necessarily reflect what NCT practitioners would hold as their values. But being such a 
complex organisation with you know lots of branch volunteers, many members who are involved in different ways, staff, practitioners. You know, it, it's it's what what I'm realising. I think is that NCT is a different thing to different people. Oh, of course. I mean, that's the nature of the human animal. You know, we create mm. meaning on the inside, and even though we use common words, the words don't mean the same. To, to each of us in, in very many ways i feel a bit like jeremy paxman here because i feel like you're avoiding saying what did it what is it that's been said then that's in conflict with some other people's view of the nct i would say i'm not deliberately trying to avoid saying i'm more sounds like it to take a a reasoned view i got it so what is it let's let's assume that that what has been said you you are not uh, you don't take a position on Okay. <laughs> All right. Let, let's assume that because, you know, you are weighing things and, you know, that's the way you work anyway. And I like it. It's why we work so long together. But what has gone out then from apparently official NCT source that is in conflict with some other people in, in NCT? Well, unfortunately, there are quite a number of examples. And one, one coming to mind is uh, having an association with an Instagram influencer who is also... Um, also has an association with a bottle manufacturer. Oh, my God. Which was embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Yeah. It. I, I feel like the one thing I want to be at, at real pains to say, and actually probably don't need to reiterate this to the, the group of people who listen to Sprogcast, is that NCT practitioners' values stay the same, no matter if things go out on social media that don't speak to our values. Yeah, no, I get that. You know, we still do the job we do. We still have the training we have and we still have the values. Hey, and women women use support, use bottles. Yeah, but we do need to adhere to the WHO code. <laughs> no, right. Yeah, do, you, do some people in the NCT perceive that this is a violation of the WHO code? Some people in and outside of the NCT and it is a violation of the new code. Well, they've they've stopped it, I assume. Yes. All right. Absolutely. And that was the top. That was the top thing to mind. What what would be one of the secondary things? I think it's it's just a, a general miscommunication. There there are other examples as well, but I'm not going to list them all. There's a human being out there doing that job, and it's not helpful for her to be publicly criticised. Ah, oh, no, but critiquing and criticising are two different things. You know, if someone's doing a job and they're getting stuff wrong in terms of uh, the values of the organisation, that's not a disciplinary issue, is it? It's an educational issue and support issue. That, I think, is probably the best approach to it, yeah. And and there's certainly, I know that the education and support is being put in place. Very good. And, uh, and it reflects a little bit on... Uh, how she's supervised, overseen and supported generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she doesn't bear the full responsibility for those mistakes. Yeah. Th- that would be my opinion. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I, I wonder, you know, when the NCT, and I'm not nothing to do with the NCT apart from being a supporter uh, and one of my best friends works for them. Uh, that's you, Karen. <laughs> so you do have a massive conflict of interest carry on <laughs> not at all you're my friend but I, I mean NCT I, I have nothing to do with it you know I actively support it because 
all that my years as a midwife, I've seen them as the gold standard when it comes to antenatal education and uh, postnatal support. So, oh, in that case, I'd like to see when your next book comes out that we get listed in the sources of support at the end. Did you not get listed in? No, I've mentioned this to you before. Okay, well, what I'll redress that. Uh, with an email to Pinter and Martin because when the book is uh, reprinted again and it gets reprinted you know from time to time I'll make sure that that omission is is put right I thought I had done to be honest there are a number of people who would be made very happy by that but I remember thinking when the decision to have a CEO that was a man uh, with a background in sort of like industry kind of thing his background is in charity management he worked for save the children ngo all right then a non-birth background yeah right i did wonder about that i did wonder whether that was going to lead long term to some conflicts of value you know of values you know where the bottom line becomes maybe more important than certain values so you know and i'm not suggesting there's a link between the instagram influencer uh, and the decision to go with her. Um, but, you know, it has crossed my mind as I sit here now. It's an interesting question. Yes. Ooh. I'm going to turn off the Jeremy Paxman now then. Okay. <laughs> Can I tell you about an email that I received? Yeah, go on. Yeah, go okay, on. So Imogen. This is, yeah, it's from Imogen. Um, Imogen Illustrator. I don't have her surname other than that. <laughs> Um, Imogen emailed to say to make a comment about our um, episode with Cecilia Tamori and she said she was disappointed I'll, I'll read it out I was a little disappointed that you mentioned that most women don't feed with their breasts out on display in public something about the way you mentioned it made it seem like it was far from the norm I have found that I often end up with my breast on full display when I'm out and about for several reasons um, and she lists them and she says, I'm sure your assertion that women don't feed with their breasts on full display wasn't meant was meant to be reassuring to those who wish to breastfeed, but maybe put off. However, in my experience, discreetly feeding in public is often not possible or necessary, necessarily desirable. Mm, I, uh, I, I was one that brought it up about about breasts being openly displayed. And then we had a conversation after it, uh, you know, where I did say that my late wife did all that she could to be covered up. Um, I remember saying, well, if, if a woman does choose to have her breasts on display or for whatever reason has her breasts on display, that shouldn't be an issue either. And I would completely agree with that. I think the point I was trying to make, apparently quite clumsily, which doesn't surprise me, um, was more that sometimes I'll hear people say, oh, women just get out their breasts to feed and they're deliberately you know, being in your face and being all militant and... Provocative. Yeah, being provocative. And my view is that people don't generally do it deliberately to be provocative. No, I get that. And Imogen's point is well made, I think. That people should be as comfortable breastfeeding however they want to out of the house as they would in the house is her point. And I agree with her. I'm with her. Yeah, me too, Imogen. Good for you. Yes, thank you for bringing us up. Yeah, I always like it when Karen gets a bit of a slap. <laughs> yeah so you're 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 okay you're busy mm -hmm. and you've got a little bit of a lull yeah how about you me uh, i am as busy as i want to be mm -hmm. and i probably could be busier but uh that's okay it all feels all right now would you like to look at the news or would you like to talk about our interview uh i think an interview i think we've spoken enough 
at this section, don't you? If you may remember a couple of episodes ago, we started to discuss our own views on um, whether babies had differently gendered brains at birth. And we slightly didn't agree with each other. And I have to apologise to you, Mark, and I know you were annoyed by this. But when I started speaking to Gina, I did exaggerate both of our positions for the sake of the effect <laughs> the interview i text you as i was listening to it and you uh, were very cross i i, I didn't well I you're, you're my friend i i just felt caricatured yeah and i was caricaturing both of us although i recognized your caricature yeah well you would wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so it just happened that after we'd been recording that particular episode i saw her on twitter and i immediately just sent her a tweet saying hey would you like to be on broadcast and to my surprise she came back saying yes and i shouldn't be surprised because we're not completely unknown and, and tiny anymore but no i was really pleased yeah it's a good interview well, you're gonna hear it in a minute yes so we we're talking to her about um her research and uh, she gives a lot of background into um how the science of brains has developed and what she comes out with by the end of it I think is that there isn't really much of a difference and where there are differences you can't really say that they they tell you anything but and she does hint at this certainly I think in the interview with you and certainly in the debate that I posted on on our page that she had with a couple of other authors if we start with behavior and work back I, I think it leads to more clarity than starting you know when looking at behavior and how it seems to differentiate between the, our species all right um and then looking for brain structures that would make sense of that i i think that's the, i think that's the wrong way round. i i think i have to start with what from phenomenologically is available to me now which is the behaviours that seem to be quite apparently distinct if we're looking across um, a large population. You would you start with behaviour and say there are clear differences and then you would be looking for structures that explain that? I think most people now accept that there is a mind and body connection. From a neurophysiological point of view, there obviously is. You know, so there are neuropeptides in the gut, is that right? There are... There, there, there are there's evidence of brain cells throughout the body. All right. So to, to, to argue that because we're not seeing clear differences in the structure of the brain, although there are some, and she does hint at the fact that there are some, um, that doesn't tell us anything about how um, the endocrine systems of the male and the female interact potentially in different ways. So I, I, I wasn't overly um convinced by the interview but listeners are going to get a chance to have a listen themselves here it is i'm delighted today to be talking with gina rippon who is the author of the gendered brain um, a book that came up a couple of episodes ago when mark mentioned it um hi gina hello thank you so much i'm really really pleased that you were able to speak to us okay so the reason your book came up is because um, over the four years or so that we've been making this broadcast, um, it's become apparent that Mark is quite, um, a, a, um, he might hate me for saying this, a biological determinist when it comes to um, the structure of brains and the effect that has on behaviour. And I'm much more um, whatever the opposite of that is. 
Right. Okay. So he thinks there's a, you know, let boys be boys type story and that you you've got the brain you're born with effectively yeah and his area is thinking about how this affects the behavior of men and women during birth and early parenting which is okay where, where we do see differences in behavior okay but we we claim it for different reasons okay well it's, it's a very complicated story so <laughs> you're probably both right or both wrong <laughs> i think we'd be happy with that we're probably happy with both wrong in fact <laughs> no no i'm sure that's not the case so will you tell us about the, the basic premise that you're writing about here? Okay. Well, I think uh, it does come back to the idea uh, that, as I think I said right at the beginning of the book, it's an old idea which has been around for a couple of centuries at least and, and probably in a different form before then, that there are two different types of bodies, male and female, and whatever it is that determines those two types of bodies also determines two types of brains, similarly male and female. So there was, from very early on, a very strong belief that female brains or the brains from women were different from the brains from men. And But the idea for that came really from working backwards from the status quo at the time. So they looked at society and they saw that women in all walks of life were generally uh, way down the pecking order financially, socially, educationally, politically, whatever. So they were trying to explain this gender gap, early gender gap, um, and decided that they, you know, blame the brain was, was an appropriate solution. So they suggested that female brains, early on, it, it was a very misogynist group of scientists, all male, um, who decided that females were even evolutionarily, and Charles Darwin signed up to that, um, further down the, the evolutionary scale than men, um, and that this was reflected in their brains. They didn't have the right kind of brains to achieve social, financial, political, educational, whatever equality. And you argue that they're basically not only asking the wrong questions, but setting out to find determinedly to find the answer they were looking for well certainly with respect to your last statement yes absolutely um because the scientists they 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 were with respect to that particular question trying to explain the status quo so obviously they wanted to find a difference and all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful ways of measuring what the brain might be like because it's not really until the end of the last century that we could really start looking at the brain uh, you know an intact living human brain carrying out um, a relevant task in situ um, so they were making up all sorts of different ways of measuring the brain with the aim really to ensure that um, white um, white males and uh, you know it was it was also uh, intersected with race and class issues as well were at the top of any particular measurement tree that they could find so there was a very fixed hunt the difference agenda and i can't remember what the first half of your <laughs> question was now sorry that, that perhaps they were asking the wrong questions yes well yes i think they were asking the wrong question because they were starting from what they assumed was a fixed starting point so they assumed that there was some kind of and, you know, use the term advisedly in, the, in those days, a God-given um, right for males and females 
to be at, at, in different places on the hierarchy. And, and so they focused on the idea that there must be a male brain or that the brains from men must be different from those from women. Hmm. I keep correcting myself with respect to female and male as, as later on we'll come to see that actually those two terms mean something different in some of my scientific colleagues' writings. <laughs> as an aside, it must be very difficult to talk about this and find the right language. It is. It is. Because if you, I mean, and to cut to the chase, uh, Simon Baron Cohen's book, The Essential Difference, opens with a statement, the female brain is hardwired for empathy and the male brain is hardwired for understanding systems, I think it's the phrase to use. Um, and, you know, that's a fairly straightforward, sounds like understandable statement, including the terms female and male and including the terms hardwired. Um, later on in the book, he then says, of course, you don't have to be a female to have a female brain or a male to have a male brain. And I think that is a major disservice to the you know, general public that he should be addressing um, because it, you know, it, a, a firm statement about the male brain assumes that you're talking about the brains from men. <laughs> this is very difficult. <laughs> Yeah, so in, in fact, if you, I mean, his, his theory is based on a, on a, a particular dichotomy of, of behaviour, which is empathy, very much to do with social networking, understanding emotions, or systemising, which is to do with understanding systems, uh, generally mechanical and engineering, not, interestingly, social systems. Um, but, you know, it... It's an interesting dichotomy, an interesting way of describing behaviour and why he couldn't say, let's have a look at the empathising brain or let's have a look at the systemising brain, which mm. I think would be a much more interesting way of approaching it. Is it correct that there's a, a mutual exclusivity between empathy and understanding systems? Uh, not not completely, to be fair. Um, I mean, there are extremes and... Um, yeah, he and I both work in the same area in, in autism and he has a particular theory called the extreme male brain theory of autism. Um, so at the extremes, they do appear to be mutually exclusive, but you can have a more balanced, um, if, you, if you take one of his online um, measures, quizzes, questionnaires, um, you, you you could be a sort of balanced empathy versus systemizer sort of person. I'm having a, a gleeful and very sexist chuckle at the idea of the extreme male brain. Yes, yes. <laughs> well, again, I think that's the trouble, you see. I mean, in a way, there's an absolute logic behind the idea that if you make a claim that individuals on the spectrum um, – do have a greater tendency to focus on systems and um, be very interested in, you know, collecting every example of whatever it is they might be interested in, um, but aren't very good at socialising. And that is more true of males than it is of females. And if it's more, even more true of individuals on the spectrum than it is of of um uh, neurotypical people, then you, you you could see where the concept of the extreme male brain comes from. Mm -hmm. But you can also see the political and social and kind of semantic issues which are uh, associated with making a statement such as that. 
Mm. So if, if we've established a, a correlation between the, the system understanding brain and that being a male thing, are we then able to say that's because their brains are different at birth? That's certainly what the claim is. Um, it, it is the claim that exactly going back to the two types of body, two types of brain explanation, that um, the various physical differences, which which there are some um, in the brain, particularly those which determine the differences between males and females before birth, so being exposed to testosterone before birth, which um, generally uh, results in a, a, a child with male genitalia, um, that also organises the brain in a different way. And the brain, having been organised in that way, then has different skills and perhaps different temperaments. And that is what will carry the owner of that particular brain down a different path from the owner of a female brain. And is that what you have found through your research? No. Uh, I What I would say is that the biological determinist view, um, which is, you know, biology's destiny, that's a way of describing it, um, we need to revisit that because we now know in the 21st century, because of different ways of thinking about the brain, that uh, the brain is much more affected by um, by the demands of society, input from social networks, from um, any kind of if, you know events in the outside world. The brain is much more responsive to those and will be changed by those throughout our lives. So that actually, when we look at what differences there can be found, and that's something we need to get back to, um, between male and female brains, we can't be sure that that's just because they're male and female, that there's some kind of biological template which is unfolding, which is what we're looking at. What we may be looking at is a brain which is treated very differently by the world um, and responds in, in its you know helpfully flexible way to those those differential treatments hmm. that's more towards my sort of perspective that our brains are very plastic and um the skills and abilities and behaviors and things like that are a result of the way we're socialized and the, the environment we experience yes that's true i mean sometimes that is cast in uh, and another reason i wrote the book what i think is a past its sell-by date concept of nature versus nurture. Mm. Um, so people say it's either nature and there is a biological template and that's what determines the difference. Or people say, no, 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 it's all, um, you know, socialization. Um, and what I'm saying is that, in fact, it, it's it's both. Um, but we haven't sort of squared the circle with respect to the socialization aspect because we hadn't realized till the last 30 years or so that the brain itself could be changed as profoundly as it is by socialization pressures. So it's it's um, nature entangled with nurture or nurture entangled with nature, whichever way you like to think of it. So both wrong. <laughs> no, let's go with both wrong. <laughs> okay, that's much nicer. So I got to section three of the book and it's at and I thought, oh, great, here I'm going to find the answer to, are the brains different at birth? And is that the um, the conclusion that we're looking for? And um, you basically said, I think, that there just isn't very much evidence or nothing conclusive. Yes. I mean, two things we have to realise, and sometimes I'm categorised as a sex difference denier, you know, a bit like a climate change denier, presumably 
same consequence for civilization. Um, what I try and do as a scientist working in the area is saying, have a look at the evidence that we've got. And for whatever reason, it could be that we're approaching it the wrong way or we don't have sufficiently sensitive techniques yet. With respect to human male and female brains, we have not found any consistent structure or collection of structures or networks or even pathways that we can now look at, which reliably differentiate the brain from a man from the brain from a woman. And to me, that would be the kind of basic premise of a claim that there's a male brain and a female brain. You should be able to tell that they're different. Uh, And in fact, we can't. And this may well be a function, as, as, as I say, of, of the techniques that we're looking at or, or what we're looking at in the brain. You know, structures goes right back to old fashioned ideas about, you know, if you've got a bigger amygdala, that means something. Um, and, and we're not sure that that's the case now. But with respect to babies, of course, the, the research area is even newer because it's only possibly in the last 10 years, maybe 15, that we've really had appropriate techniques to look at the brains of newborns and people are even now being able to look at the brains of uh, infants before they're born which of course is really exciting um so there's a lot of one-off findings out there but not too many which are starting to tell a consistent story and that's what i was trying to put forward in the book that if we really look at in the same way we look at adult brains we start to look at what we found about baby brains the story isn't consistent. That doesn't mean it's wrong, but just given the downstream consequences of making the kind of claims that arise from the idea that male brains are different from female brains, um, we need to be sure there's a good sound basis for making that kind of claim. Right. So we're in a, a state of still trying to find out much, much more. Yes. And I think one of the troubles is also that we have to realise that if, if you talk to a group of parents um, or people who deal with small children, they, they will sturdily assert that they know boys are different from girls because very often, you know, they've got a boy and a girl and they're different. Uh, or even they've got maybe two boys, two girls. As soon as you get more than two, actually, people do start to say, actually, my two boys are different from each other, you know, in the same way that my two girls are different from each other. Um I suppose it's, sorry. I was going to just say people, there's a thing called confirmatory bias. So if you have a kind of comfortable, it's worked so far view of the world, you tend to view, to notice more strongly um, things that confirm that belief because it means you don't have to change your view of the world, etc. So I think, I think sometimes people will say, I don't care what you say. I know boy babies are different from girl babies. Um, but they're dealing with very small numbers, usually. Um, yes, it's yes. really when people are looking at very large numbers of boys, very large number of girl, girls, and saying, actually, there's quite a big overlap between the two. And maybe the difference isn't as great as we thought. Mm. And also, presumably, parents seeing differences between their boy and their girl and assuming that the differences are because they are a boy and a girl and not for some other reason. Yes, absolutely. As I say, when people have more than one boy or more than one girl, uh, they start to say, actually, you know, children are individuals, which is a nice healthy view, I think. (laughs) 
So on the subject of nice, healthy views, what do you think um, are the implications of this for people working with parents-to-be and new parents? I think the key thing is to make sure that however you, that you don't treat children differently anyway, um, but to make sure that how you treat them is is a response to their behaviour, not a response to a kind of stereotypical, you know, expectation. Um, so I came across, I gave a talk recently and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, you know, she just had a, a boy baby having had a girl baby and the midwife spent some time talking to her with this new baby about how she should treat it differently because he was a boy and she should make these sort of sounds or, um, you know, uh, encourage him to move around more, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So, you know, there is a concern that I have is that these stereotypes are self-fulfilling because obviously if you treat people differently, very often they'll turn out differently. I'm often told as a breastfeeding counsellor um, helping parents that their their boy baby is a lazy feeder. I'm pretty sure I've never heard a girl baby described as a lazy feeder. All right. Okay. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I it, there's certain examples early on and, and certainly as uh, children develop, um, and they do, they are dramatically different in how they develop. Um, but very often it's just because they are, you know, that, you know, the, there is a biological template there, obviously, because <laughs> normally, um, you know, there are two types of bodies and um, and the order in which the various skills and, and expertise and changes will emerge is the same across the world. So, you know, th- there is definitely a very fixed biological template, but it's much more flexible than we realised. Um, and not so much in terms of encouraging people to do things. It's more to notice when they're not doing things because of expectations. So giving girls different sorts of toys from boys because they believe that girls play with different sorts of toys as opposed to they, well, they do play with different sorts of toys because that's what they're given. Yes, we've seen some good documentaries over the last few years. Indeed, yes. No More Boys and Girls was a good programme on the BBC, yes. <laughs> Gina, thank you. Um, do you want to just say a little bit about wh- where you can be contacted or um, where, where your information is if people want to find out a little bit more? Okay, yes, I've got a, a website, um, which is Um unoriginally <laughs> nice and easy um, yes uh and and you can contact me via that um and there's a, a twitter feed which is at gina rippon one um i don't know why they needed a one anyway they needed a one um so i you know tweets will will also get to me thank you very much it's been really interesting okay bye for now Great interview, that. I, I, I thought you were very deferential, Karen. I wish that you'd done it. Uh, but I, I, I don't know. I got a sense that, you know, maybe she was um, uh, quite a big name for us. I just felt like... Uh, what I feel like now is that you and I are looking at it very differently. Mm. And you're looking for her to have said something that I wasn't looking for. You see, I, I thought her argument about the brain plasticity is very interesting. Yeah, and I find all the history of the research and the way that men found what they were looking for over and over again really fascinating. And 
really that was the main bit that I'd been kind of engaged in reading. Yeah, I understand that. And and, and that, that kind of hints at, you know, the idea of cognitive bias. You know, that effectively our brains work like filtering mechanisms. So we are more likely to find data that is in keeping with what we expect to find. Right? Mm. Right? But doesn't that apply to her too? Guess you'd have to talk to her about her methodology. Y- you would, and she would justify her met- methodology, right? Just like the the men, and they're not all men. I have a book on my shelf of a cognitive uh, scientist who believes in some kind of sexual difference that's rooted in physiology, who is a woman, so obviously she doesn't fit into the paradigm of this all being men. The point being that the men or whoever designed the studies that she doesn't agree with, uh, all would believe that their methodology is rigorous. Yeah, but I think she's right to point out that they were doing it on either diseased brains or corpses. No, that's absolutely right. And fMRI does open the door to more uh, real-time looking at how the function of the human system seems to work. I get that. That point about um, the male looking for what, they're expecting to find surely that applies to her too doesn't it in the sense that all scientists are looking for something you you're basically saying all science is is just people trying to prove themselves right and i don't think that's how it works added it well at a deeply unconscious level i i think the the process of scientific research i i think there are two things that are important when it comes to science maybe three so first thing is that any fruit of our scientific inquiry will never arrive at truth. So it always leaves us with more questions that need testing, you know, inside our, our own experience and our collective experience. That's the first thing. Second thing is, is any research study that's done, what happens in the scientific establishment is that the, the, the experiment gets repeated, you know, by another set of scientists. Mm-hmm. So, so the repeating of experiments with similar results being got from a different set of scientists in a different location is a safeguard against a human being's natural tendency to, to be blind to what they're not wanting to see. Mm-hmm. So the, the history of science is, is one with built-in safeguards. Yeah. So her, her premise would be that men and women are the same and there is no distinction no i don't think so it's that men and women's brains are the same at birth all oh, right is that it well she's not saying that they're they don't change because as you've said she talks about plasticity of the brain and she talks a lot about the nature nurture kind of balance all right so uh, maybe i got it completely wrong then so what she's saying is that there does seem to be differences in in brain function and structure uh, but it, they're not born that way. She's saying that any differences that you see, A, are not there at birth, and B, don't tell you how somebody's going to behave. If we find differences, we still don't really know what those differences mean. Okay. But what, what was your first point just now? That um, that it doesn't bring us to truth because... It doesn't. I, I, any, any research... It should leave we, us with more questions. Yeah, because a, any research we do any looking we do is filtered through our way of seeing the world i would agree with the the idea of that it leaves us with more questions i think that's what most scientists are looking for isn't it that they they are proving themselves wrong 
they're, they're hoping to find more questions to ask. Surely the joy of doing science is never finding the answer. And also, as you say, that science needs to be replicable. Is that the right yeah. word? And also reviewed. And I like, uh, you know, if, if I'm looking for evidence for something, a really thorough Cochrane review where all of the studies have been kind of pulled out. and Yeah, like a meta-analysis. Um, yeah, and, and checked for quality and then just taking the ones that really you know, are very robust and looking at those combined answers. Yeah, there's a, there is a problem with meta-analysis as well, but I mean, that's a subject for probably for another episode. Whether or not, you know, we're born with the same brains and it seems from the book that, that we are and things, pressures upon our, our environment lead to plasticity changes in the brain that lead to different behaviours, I don't know. But phenomenologically, there does seem to be differences generally in the way men and women respond to their environment. Hmm. And we haven't even touched on the nurture side of the debate at all. No, absolutely. But I think we maybe mentioned that last time, didn't we? Good interview, Karen. We Thank need you very much. More, more of them, I think. More of that sort of thing. <laughs> what else would you like to talk about today? I think we've got some stuff in the news. I, I think I was quite struck. It's not a research paper as such. Uh, but it was published by the BBC, I think. And it's severe pregnancy sickness. And then it's the experience of a woman that had hyperemesis gravidarium. Yeah. Um, speaking about how debilitating and, uh, well, life-threatening hyperemesis gravidarium is. You know, there is certainly my history as a community midwife, you know, uh, this report says that one in a hundred women uh, are hospitalized with excessive vomiting in pregnancy and that's a high number right mm, yeah let's let's explore it a little bit more more than 5000 women from across the UK have shared their experience of uh, hg with bbc news most had considered terminating their pregnancy one in three had thought of killing themselves and about 3 quarters were left with long-term physical and mental health problems including post-traumatic stress disorder and depression that's pretty horrible yeah and there is evidence to suggest that charlotte bronte died of hyperemesis gravidarum in 1855 oh yeah i, I can see that there yeah so and I, I i think it's worth reading and i think it's worth um bringing it to the attention of our listeners so this is um, from BBC News on the 15th of May and the title is Severe Pregnancy Sickness, I Thought I Was Dying by Georgie Bevan. Have you got anything else? Um, I think, did you post this, the, the article from The Independent? After Brexit, black women will be less safe when giving birth in Britain. So it's by Connie Hug. Yeah, and the argument is that because there will be a drop in standards of care post-Brexit, that this is obviously going to impact on women. Well, she's building, she's building her argument, I think, upon what's already known, that there are significantly poor outcomes for pregnancy uh, of ethnic mi minority women already. So, so if you add to that uh, drop in standards, it, it's, it's going to, by uh, extension, affect black women more. Yeah, because we've already got clear evidence of that. Yeah. I always want to refer people back to Mars Lord's episode mm -hmm. um, because, you know, that's a powerful um, discussion of, oh, I, I wanted to say systemic racism, but is that too strong? No, that's exactly what she's discussing. Yeah. 
So in this article, she says that ethnic minority women generally have poorer outcomes from their pregnancy compared to white women, which we already know. They stay longer in hospital, are less likely to receive pain relief during labour and have fewer home visits from midwives. God. The maternal mortality rate for UK-born Asian women is one and a half times higher. And for UK-born black women, nearly five times higher than for white women. And infant mortality rates for their babies are around twice as high as for white babies. God, that is scandalous. So you can see why, you know, even more inadequate staffing yeah. is just going to multiply this. God, it's, it's hard not to read those stats and not conclude that the system is racist. Well, yeah, you couldn't conclude anything else, really. God, staggering. So we've put that out there for people to have a read and reflect upon. Where are we now? I know we're both feeling a bit now. <laughs> Stuff like that just staggers me. I, 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 I just find it hard. I, I don't know. Is it because I'm a white middle-aged man? What is it that you find hard? I just find it hard to believe that 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 this kind of and let's say it's unconscious, but this kind of let's hope that it's unconscious this kind of widespread racism is is still going on in the uk to to that kind of level of disparity between outcomes but when you say hard to believe you don't mean you disbelieve it do you no of course you no your data speaks for itself hmm. no I, I i believe it entirely i i i feel a certain level of shame I think that's that's the appropriate thing to feel. Yeah, shame. Yeah, I don't feel any a desire to defend myself or, or at, at one level because you know like we said after Mars's interview um I I didn't choose to be born um a white male. But also after speaking, do you remember to Louise Oliver a little while ago about diversity in infant feeding? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do notice, you know, sometimes when I read some of what Mars writes or when I read issues around uh, race and discrimination, I do notice a defensive reaction, mm. you know, in myself, you know, a reaction that goes, well, surely not. You but know. it's important to be aware of the reaction and be aware of your own conditioned thinking. Yeah, definitely. I, although I, I know we've said this, I don't know, lots of episodes. It's the things that I'm not conscious of that are probably driving my life anyway, in some way. You know, the vast majority of my behaviours occur automatically based on unconscious responses. I imagine you're just whizzing around like a little wind-up toy, Mark. bit of research I read recently that suggests that before we are consciously aware that we're going to do something brain structures have already come into operation to move us in that direction before we're conscious that we've made that choice. So that suggests that we don't have free will. I mean, a lot of neuroscience uh, that I read is pointing in the direction of us not having actual free will. Yeah. You know, we have free agency, which is the illusion that we're making a free choice. But all of the circumstances of our life, maybe our genetic history, is all coming to play uh, in the moment that I make a choice. So although it, although it appears a free choice, it isn't. Uh, what are you going to do about it? 
nothing. You, I, you have to live as though you... That's the joke. You can't. I uh, know. Exactly. <laughs> no, exactly. I have to live as though I'm making choices uh, based, based upon a value system. How are you making those choices? Exactly. Now we're getting very deeply philosophical and perhaps a little bit outside our usual remit. <laughs> so, Mark, what has inspired you lately? I, I'm still inspired by uh, the book Jeffrey Martin called Finders. Is that the same thing you mentioned last time? Yeah, but I, I'm in the midst again. of um, a, a research project. I'm a participant on Jeffrey uh, Martin's research. So I'm doing a 17-week course of daily exercises, meditations, and the rest of it, as well as a weekly, well, sorry, bi-weekly online meeting with five people from all around the world, Brazil, Belarus, Athens. So we follow this very tightly designed research uh, protocol. We have to do various exercises, a certain amount of time each day. Uh, and the goal is to see whether this process leads to us experiencing the world in a non-symbolic way. Interesting stuff. We'll look forward to the results of that one as well. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of evidence out there. I'll post some on the page. Excellent. Thank you. And I'm inspired because I am noticing changes in perception. Okay. What about you? I wanted to recommend a podcast called Swindled. Um which is a it's a sort of true crime podcast telling stories um but some of the it, it's not so much kind of um like a lot of the true, true crime podcasts out there are about like unsolved murders and things like that and this one is more corporate and they've got a fairly recent episode on the baby formula in industry um which I would recommend to anybody who's remotely interested in that. And especially if you didn't get a chance to see the film Tigers, which I did last week, it's the same kind of subject matter and it's explained very, very clearly. And it's a really interesting listen. So it's swindled podcast. What did you think of Tigers? I enjoyed it. I was sitting in a in a theatre at Reading University that had the most uncomfortable seats of any cinema in history, which distracted me a bit. But It was. Was it directed well? Was it a good film yeah. in, a, in and of itself? Oh, yeah, definitely. It was very watchable. Where do, where do we get to see that film? Because I've had a look online. It's not on Vimeo, is it? Um, there is a, a place where you can download it now, and I'll put that on the show notes. Oh, good. Good. I'd like to watch it. So, yeah, pe- people can access it outside of the, the few theatres where it's been shown. Cool. Well, I think that's pretty much all we've got time for today. So do let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, We say it every episode. We love to hear from you. Uh, so please get in touch. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. If you're listening on iTunes and you feel inclined to do so, you could leave us a review. And don't forget to check out Patreon. Thanks for listening. That's goodbye from me then. <laughs> goodbye from me. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Karen Hall and Mark Harris. The news we've been discussing is on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Sprogcast. And don't forget you can buy great books from pinterandmartin.com using the discount code Sprogcast at the checkout.